0: Hey everyone, Sid Evans here, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. We're taking a break, but I wanted to reshare a favorite episode and a favorite guest from last fall. Here's my conversation with country superstar Trisha Yearwood discussing her latest cookbook, The Similarities Between Making Meals and Making Music, and Growing Up in Monticello, Georgia. Enjoy. In the South, there's such an encouragement
1: to gather. We have a family reunion every time you turn around, and that's where the sharing of stories and recipes, that's where that all comes from.
0: Welcome to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. Whether on stage or in the kitchen, my guest this week tells me she's spent her whole life entertaining. And for her, there are plenty of similarities between making music and making a meal.
1: Cooking is therapeutic, getting your hands into the the dish and making a pie crust from scratch. Or just having people that you love over and making them a meal that makes them feel good. It's kind of like playing to an audience in in
0: the same regard. Maybe the applause is a little less. This year marks the 30th anniversary of Trisha Yearwood's hit single, She's in Love with the Boy, And over the last three decades, she's become one of the most influential artists in country music, racking up nearly 60 award nominations for hugely popular songs like How Do I Live and Walk Away Joe. But aside from music, Trisha has carved her own lane in the culinary world as well. Having learned simple recipes from her mom as a kid, Trisha has always loved feeding her family and friends. And she released her first cookbook Georgia cooking in an Oklahoma kitchen in 2008. 4 years later, Trisha's Kitchen debuted on the Food Network and has become one of cable's most popular food programs. On today's show, you'll hear the early cooking advice Trisha got from her mom that she carries with her to this day. You don't have to know
1: everything to be able to make good food and sometimes my mom's motto was simple as best and I love it when somebody who says they can't cook comes to me because I'm like, go to the first book, make the meatloaf. It has four ingredients. You can make this. And when you do, you'll be like, I made that. And then you will have the confidence to try the next thing. And maybe that will lead you down the path to trying the more complicated
0: things. But everybody can cook. I believe that. Plus, her husband Garth Brooks's favorite meals, a sneak peek at Trisha's new cookbook coming out next month, and much more this week on Biscuits and Jam. Well, Trisha Yearwood, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Well, thank you. (laughs) So, Trisha, we started this podcast about a year ago to talk about food and music. So I always thought of you as the perfect guest. (laughs) And I mean, you can do food and music better than just about anyone. So I can't tell you how excited I am to finally have you on. Well, thank you. I mean, anything that says biscuits
1: and jam, I'm pretty much in. So it's funny too, because music and food have so many things in common. It's like we all have to eat and it's so important and smells and tastes, but music is the same. It's like we have to have music to function for me. You know, I just can't imagine. So it's kind of like they go hand in hand. It kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, do singing for people and cooking for people kind of come from the same place for you? Well, I think both of them,
1: no pun intended, feed my soul. And I think I can't imagine not singing because it's what I truly believe I was born to do. And I didn't realize until I started cooking more and more how also that feeds my soul as well as my body. You know, just really cooking is therapeutic, getting your hands into the the dish and making a pie crust from scratch or just having people that you love over and making them a meal that makes them – feel good. It's kind of like playing to an audience in the, in the same regard. Maybe the applause is a little less. Sometimes I get applause for my food, but um, most of the time, it's just the, the yummy sounds that you want that are satisfying. So there's something that is very gratifying in doing it. And there is that ego boost of having people appreciate what you do too. So it's kind of the same.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You get something back from the audience in both cases, right? Yeah, you do. and it, And so
1: it is self-serving, but at the same time, I enjoy singing for people to to bring them joy or comfort or commiseration whatever that is and the same thing with food i mean it, it's probably no coincidence that food is present at every occasion and used in every emotion from weddings to funerals you know so it's definitely something that evokes emotion on both both sides
0: Well, so, Tricia, you grew up in a little town called Monticello, Georgia. Am I saying that the right way? You are. You are. (laughs) Most people don't. You did it right. And this is kind of between Atlanta and Macon. And I saw that you went back there when your last album came out in 2019. Clearly, this is a place that, that means a lot to you. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to grow up there and kind of how it shaped you as a person? It was a small town, like maybe 2,000
1: people in the town, maybe 10,000 people in the county. I'm not sure. Something like that. It's probably still pretty similar. It's a town that is almost like a time capsule. Growing up there as a little kid was kind of like a Mayberry situation, you know. And when you're a teenager, it's difficult because everybody knows you. Everybody knows your business. We had a town square and that was not the place to hang out. My dad had always said if I catch you on the square, you know, so we didn't hang out at the square, but you also knew that if you were parked on the square, your parents didn't have to see you there. Just someone had to see you there and your parents would know before you got home that you had been on the square, you know. So I think that that accountability was something that as a teen I didn't love, but it, I carried with me as an adult. That small town feeling of responsibility and accountability, which I think was a a great lesson. It's almost like your parents raise you, but also the whole town raises you. So to go back there, even though my parents are gone and my sister and I both live in Tennessee, it's still home. And I still know almost everybody there, you know, so it really is my hometown forever. I'll always be from Monticello, Georgia. That's always going to feel like home for me no matter where I am.
0: What are some of the things that make Monticello kind of different from so many other small towns in Georgia and and across the South?
1: It was one of those towns that stayed the same. And, and in some ways, that was a struggle for Monticello. They had to figure out ways to kind of reinvent themselves. So the town square went through phases of having stores that weren't open but, and there wasn't a big retailer like a Walmart, you know, we had a Dairy Queen, which is still there, still my grandmother worked there, um, but not a lot of fast food places. I mean, it was a place that kind of stayed in that capsule, which presents its own challenges. I think what makes it different is that when you go there, it does give you a sense of childhood. And probably even if you're not from there, you know, you get that sense of this proud town that has all the old buildings and the things that made it quaint also brought notoriety to it. Um, famously, the movie My Cousin Vinny was filmed there. If you ever watch that movie, which every time I watch it, oh, the, sack yeah. of suds, <laughs> the sack of suds is a real place. And, you know, the courthouse is a real place. And so it was really fun to get to see your hometown in in this movie, you know, and there've been several movies made there actually. So that's one of the things that kind of People look for oh, let's go to this town that's really kind of stayed the same. It's a historic town, and they've kept it up. It's a beautiful place, and I tell people when you grow up with it, you don't appreciate the dogwood lined streets, driving down the, the main street to go to church on Sundays. Those you see them every day, you know. But when you when you've been gone and you come back, you're like, wow, this is really really special.
0: So, Tricia, your first cookbook was called Georgia Cooking in an Oklahoma Kitchen. (laughs) And it was a huge bestseller. And your mom and your sister, Beth, are both listed as co-authors. What was the most important thing that your mom taught you about cooking? Well, first of all, the book was supposed to have a more succinct title.
1: And it was the working title for the book because when I first moved to Oklahoma, my niece Ashley and my sister Beth and my mom put together this book that was called Georgia Cooking in Oklahoma Kitchen to send me to Oklahoma with all these Georgia recipes so that I wouldn't be too lost out there, you know, on the plains. And so it became the working title. And I always thought we'd change it because it's a mouthful. But then once you've been using it the whole time. The publishers were like, no, we like it. We're, keep- we're going to keep it. My mom was a really great cook. She was not a chef, obviously, but she seemed to just know everything. Like if you had a question about the simplest thing from how long to boil eggs for to how to frost a wedding cake, she had you covered. And she was just fearless. She was not afraid to try stuff in the kitchen when we were little and she stayed home with us before we could go to school. That's when she started making the wedding cakes and birthday cakes and things for people as a way to bring an income for the family on the side. And I mean, I would put her cakes up against any bakery anywhere in the world. She made beautiful cakes, not using fondant, using icing. She made sugar flowers and all of that. So for me, she always made me feel like it was okay to not know everything and to ask questions and also to just try it. Was the worst thing that can happen? And you fail a lot, but then you finally get there. And I, I think that was a great lesson for me because in this world, I am not a chef. I'm a home cook like my mom. So to not feel intimidated and to feel like I bring something to the table, no pun intended, even though I don't have all that classical training. Although that is one of my things I would really like to do is I'd like to go to culinary school someday just to learn all the stuff. Because I see these guys talking about, oh, I brought the spice that was first originated in. uh, I don't know any of those things. So I, I think it'd be really fun to learn that stuff.
0: Well, you know, that's a great lesson even today. There's so many cooking shows out there and it's so easy to get intimidated and say, oh, I'll, I'll never be able to cook like that. But you really just have to kind of carry on and, and try things, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, and I think that's always too nice to have somebody like me who says, I'm a home cook like you are. So you don't have to know everything to be able to make good food. And sometimes my mom's motto was simple as best. When we were writing the first book, my editor, who was wonderful and taught me how to write, she would say, we need exotic spices and I'm like salt and pepper are our exotic spices. (laughs) If we're feeling crazy, we might put some garlic powder in something, but pretty much this is what it's going to be. And I think that was just that lesson from my mom of keeping it simple. And, I love it when somebody who says they can't cook comes to me because I'm like, go to the first book, make the meatloaf. It has four ingredients. You can make this. And when you do, you'll be like, I made that. And then you will have the confidence to try the next thing. And maybe that will lead you down the path to trying the more complicated things. But everybody can cook. I believe that.
0: So I want to ask you a little more about her cakes. I know that you have a tabletop collection with William Sonoma, and I love that you named it the Gwendolyn Collection after your mom. Tell me a little bit about her cake designs and how they inspired that whole idea. My sister and I talked about this a lot because we were the little kids who would be carrying
1: the cake in pieces, the wedding cakes to the wedding. And we're young and we don't want to mess up the cake. And we're in the backseat of the station wagon, you know, holding these cakes. And we just thought she just was magic. And we just didn't really know how, how it happened. And years later, just a few years ago, we were going through some of her things and we found these catalogs where she would order a lot of her pans from and some of the things that she used, some of the columns she would use, you know, for wedding cakes and found these sketches. And we went, of course, she would have drawn what she was going to make before she made it. If she needed to go to a wedding and didn't have a dress, she would draw what she wanted to wear and she would make the dress and wear it that afternoon to the wedding. I mean, she was, she was truly (laughs) magical. So we took those sketches and and we're talking to William sonoma about doing something. What, what's the next thing? Because we've done a lot of things together. And their chief designer, Wayne, took these drawings and made this pattern out of her sketches. Nothing's altered it. These are her sketches and made them into this beautiful dinnerware. And I think for me, of all the things that I've been involved in, I'm most proud of this because it's her. It's such a great tribute to her. It's, I believe, 100% she would have loved it. And it's elegant like her and classy like her and such a true representative. Um, so I am
0: i couldn't be more proud. That's so great. So, Tricia, I want to know what a typical weeknight would have looked like in your kitchen growing up. Did you and your sister cook together back then, or was that something that, that came later?
1: My mom was a third grade school teacher, so we would get home every day at 3.15 And sometimes later, if we had to stop by the grocery store after school, and she had her thermos that she would always pour herself a cup of lukewarm coffee and start with that and take a minute for herself. And that was it. Then it was on. And it was a home-cooked meal. I don't remember a night that we did not have a home-cooked meal on the table. And that was every night. And my dad would cook on the weekends. He was a good cook. He would either grill steaks or he'd make big breakfasts on Saturday. But... She always did the bulk of it. And for Beth and I, Beth was three years older than me. So Beth would sometimes help her in the kitchen more than I would. My job was usually setting the table and cracking the ice cubes (laughs) for tea. And also I was the one who was closest to the kitchen, even though we had the (laughs) seventies pass through from the kitchen to the dining room. If something was missing from the table, if we didn't have salt and pepper or we didn't have ketchup or whatever we didn't have, Trisha got sent to the kitchen for it because I was closest. And Beth cooked a little bit more than me because she was older, but it really wasn't until I moved to Nashville at 19 and got an apartment. I was in school and I was homesick. I missed home. I missed my mama's cooking. I'd never had a vegetable out of a can because we had a garden. And I called home just saying, tell me how to make something. Like I need a connection to home. And it was potato salad, which was very Southern, but it was just, and there's a lot of different versions. Hers was very simple, four ingredients, I made it and I cried because it tasted like hers and also I could do it. And I think that was honestly, even though I was a late bloomer, that was the beginning for me of going, this is way beyond just being able to cook for yourself. It is about that, but it's also about what it does for you emotionally, how it connects you when you can't physically be together. And that has really been the whole theme of, especially since my parents are gone, doing the books, doing the cooking show, Is a way to keep them alive and with us through their food, through making things that they made. It's been such a wonderful gift for Beth and me to be able to honor them in this way.
0: What was the secret to that potato salad?
1: Well, I think the secret was more mayonnaise. Everything morphs over time. Now I put a little mustard in it, which I think she would not be about that. But it it was just the secret's really potatoes. You know, it's just potatoes, mayonnaise, salad pickles, boiled eggs, chopped up, and salt and pepper. Doesn't get much more basic than that. And just so good. Oh, I'm gonna have to make it now that we
0: talked about it. (laughs) We'll have more from Trisha Yearwood after the break. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and I'm talking with country superstar Trisha Yearwood. Well, Trisha, I wanted to turn to music for a second and ask you, who was someone uh, that made a huge impression on you as an artist when you were growing up? Was there someone that inspired you either because of their uh, voice or their career or the way they carried themselves? Hands down, Lena Ronstadt. I discovered her
1: when I was probably nine or ten, and I think it was when Malabi Loved came out, like seventy-four, somewhere in there. And it was everything. You know, she was this young, independent woman. She had this. Big voice, and I—I I was a very dramatic young girl because I—I I just was wrapping my arms around these heartbreak songs, having never had any heartbreak at all, you know, in my life. But it was also dramatic. She made you feel like she was living every word. I play piano, and I would get every Leonard Set songbook, and I would sit at the piano when I would get home from school and play these songs. And then I would be really depressed, as a teenager will be, because I'm like, I can't hit those notes. I'll never be Linda Ronstell, I'll never be that good. She was the driving force that I think taught me how to to sing, how to belt out a lyric, how to feel the songs. She embodied everything that I wanted to be and still does. I mean, the first time I got to meet her, I was in my 20s and I had a record deal and she uh, knew my music, which freaked me out. And when I met her, I just told her all this. I was just telling her how important she was. And she made some compliment to me about my phrasing, how I phrase lyrics. And I'm like, well, I just copy you. I do what I think you would do. I love how even you could you could feel the crack in her voice if it ever happened. You could hear the breathing in between the phrases. And now with modern technology, a lot of times engineers want to cut those breaths out. And I'm like, no, 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 no. (laughs) You want to hear the artist breathe. So she's just, she's just
0: my hero. Do y'all still have a relationship?
1: We do. And it's very strange to call your hero, your friend. You know, when you meet your heroes. You kind of don't want to sometimes because you're just afraid. What if they're not everything I want them to be? But she's so intelligent. She's so kind. I think she knows how important it is to me. I still have to get past the fact that she's Linda Ronstadt, but she is also my friend. And as hard as that is to say, I'm so grateful because it's so wonderful to get a chance to actually, I mean, she was a mentor to me and didn't know it. So to get to be her friend now and to have that relationship is so, so special to me.
0: Mm, That's wonderful. So, Tricia, this marks the 30th anniversary of your song, She's in Love with the Boy, which was really like a rocket that took you into the stratosphere. And I'm just wondering if you can take me back to 1991 for a minute and tell me what it was like for you when that song came out. And what does that song mean to you now?
1: You know, I, I mentioned that I have been wanting to sing since I was five. So for me, I, I just never had a backup plan. And that first single came out when I was 26. So I, I really did spend over 20 years trying to figure out, how am I going to do this? And growing up in a small town with not really an outlet for this, I didn't know. I mean, I just thought, I have to be able to do this because I want it so badly. Surely God's not going to give me this desire, and I can't find a way to do it. So when She's in Love, the Boy came out, At the time, Reba, who was my hero in country music, had had several albums out before a song really took off. So I was not expecting the first single to do anything except maybe introduce me to the country music audience. And we made a video for it. And it went to the video channel to CMT two weeks before the single came out. And Radio Station's started getting calls from people who were seeing the video, wanting to hear the song. And I think that was the first indication that I thought, oh, this is going well. People are going to know it's going to be a nice little introduction. And and then the second single has this guy named Garth Brooks on harmony. And that's going to be the one that's going to really just, you know, I, I just don't think I was thinking if we have a top 40 song, I'll be happy. And now if anybody says we knew that was going to be a hit, they don't, you don't know. You just hope for the best. And then it kept climbing and kept climbing It became a runaway train that you're just trying to hold on to. And then the fear becomes, okay, she's going to be a one-hit wonder, have this huge song and never be heard from again. I'm going to be a trivia question. So then the pressure to continue. You're lucky if you get one song like that. I would count How Do I Live as one. I would count Walk Away Joe as one. I think you're lucky to have enough of that magic that happens enough that you get to Sustain a career. Amazed that I'm sitting here 30 years later. I'm amazed it's been 30 years. I'm also amazed that I still get to do what I love to do. But yeah, I think that first year when when I see it in my head, it's just going by like a train. It's going by so fast. You're just trying to be in the moment, and it's hard because it 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 took us all by surprise.
0: Well, I want to fast forward a little bit and talk about a song on your most recent album called "Working on Whiskey." I just love this song and. The great Kelly Clarkson joined you on it. I just want to know what it was like to work with her. The two of you seem to have a very strong bond and having your voices, both of your voices on that song is just incredibly powerful.
1: She is hands down one of the best singers I've ever heard in my life. She can sing anything. And for someone who is that good to be so down to earth is just a rare combination. She's so real, she's so funny, and she's so good. She must not know she's that good or she wouldn't be that nice. You know, it's like, she's so good. Kelly could make a fence post sound like a really great singer, but to sing with her and to hear our voices kind of get that buzz together is so much fun. And it's funny that you mentioned working on whiskey, because when I heard that song before I recorded it, I heard man, Linda Ronstadt would have killed this. I was like, Linda Ronstadt would have sung this song. I'm going to sing this song. So it has that vibe to me. So it was so much fun to sing. And then Kelly's voice, if a harmony is good, and sometimes it just is the right person for the right song, it really just elevates it. And her vocal on that song just took it to another level. But I I love that song. It was not a single. I love to sing it live. I'll do it in the show even though it wasn't a single just because I want to sing it. I wish Kelly would just come out and, you know, live on the bus and sing it with me every night, but (laughs) maybe someday.
0: Do you feel like singing just that little beginning to that song? Never loved the way that
1: I loved you. You left a mark like an old tattoo. I I started it too low, and I don't know what I'm going to do without you. (laughs) A little too low. I love I love that song. I'm going to make potato salad and sing that song when we hang up. <laughs>
0: Well, so Tricia, you've got a lot going on. You have a new cookbook coming out that's called Trisha's Kitchen, Easy Comfort Foods for Friends and Family. It sounds great. The recipes in it sound great. And this one was also a partnership with your sister, Beth. How are you and Beth different as cooks? I mean, is one of you a little more scientific or is one of you a little more into spice or sweets? How do you all work together? Like, if
1: you could imagine us both in the kitchen, her kitchen's clean and there's flour on the floor in my kitchen. Like, she's gonna measure everything. She's the older sister, right? She's the responsible one. So, she's gonna measure everything exactly. She's gonna weigh her pans for her three cakes to make sure they all are exactly the same weight before she puts them in the oven. I'm a little looser. when it comes to that kind of stuff. And so she's more my mom in that regard. My mom was very precise. My dad, like if he wasn't making a mess, he wasn't cooking. And I'm a little bit more like him. So it's a really good yin and yang for the book because she can be my voice of reason when I need to be reined in a little bit. And I can encourage her to like, hey, don't worry so much about that. Like, let's let it go. So I think she and I are a really good combination. And the thing that we most share that is so wonderful are the memories that we have of our family that nobody else has, you know. So in writing this book and telling the stories, she has memories of stories just being that few years older than me that I don't remember. So it's also wonderful every time we collaborate to kind of write those stories down. And she'll tell me something that I'm like, I didn't know that. So it's it's such a joy. And she's my person. We have that shared experience that siblings have that nobody else has. And so I, I can't
0: imagine doing
1: a book without her.
0: Do y'all ever have any sibling battles over what's going to go in the book and what's not?
1: No, not really. I mean, she's very easygoing, and I'm very controlling, so <laughs> it's <laughs> it's kind of e- it's kind of easy. She's just my favorite person because she's so good, and she's such a nice person, and she has such a great spiritual side. She's not judgmental, even though Lord knows she should judge me. She's just the the best of everything. So yeah, we don't really. I mean, we collaborate. But I'm usually the one going, hey, what about this? Or, hey, do you think this is right? And she's the one that will help me. We're both grammar police. So we help each other make sure we're you know, getting everything right. And I just know when the book gets turned in, if her eyes are on it, it's going to be fine.
0: <laughs> so many of the recipes in your cookbooks and on your show are about entertaining and cooking for a crowd. What's something that you like to make when it's just you and Garth?
1: He loves anything that's a casserole that's in one dish so that he doesn't have to come along for a leftover and put it on a plate. He'll just stick the fork in the casserole dish, you know, so anything like he asked me about breakfast lasagna, which is in the new book. He's like, a lot of people make these breakfast casseroles, but can you make like a full on lasagna with the noodles and everything, but just all the layers be things that would be in it that you'd have for breakfast. And so we worked on that together and tweaked it and gave it more flavor every time and that was just something he wanted to do that we now has become a staple in our house. So I'll, I'll breakfast is big at our house, even for dinner. So if he's really craving something, it's usually something that has to do with breakfast and any time of day. So that, that's, that's one thing. And then he also really loves, I make up from the first book. I make my mom's Sunday roast beef and rice and gravy. And that was Sunday in our house every, every Sunday. And if we're, if we're having people over or if we're, you know, wanting to impress somebody, he'd be like, can you make that roast beef? And I think he just really wants to have it for himself, but he loves that. And those are things that last. You don't, that's not one meal and done. That's a leftover, that's a cold roast beef sandwich waiting to happen. So that's
0: good. (laughs) I've heard that you've been known to call him Gartha Stewart.
1: (laughs) I have, you know, he will, he makes a really amazing pasta salad. And, but even if he makes like a sandwich or something. He'll usually take a picture of it because he's he's impressed with himself, you know. Or he opens a jar of pickles and he'll be like, well, you know, I, I have my master's and I have my own cooking show. And he's, you know, he's, he's funny in the kitchen, but he's also just fearless. He's willing to tackle anything and help out and do whatever it takes. So he's a great help in the kitchen.
0: So, Tricia, we've all come through this past year, and I know that you guys were probably planning lots of tours and stadium shows and all that got canceled. Have you been doing a lot more cooking as a result?
1: I would say a lot of things that needed attention, like my closet, things that like the cupboards need to be cleaned out, things that were like, oh, I'm going to do this project. Those things were things that got tackled during this time. And as, as hard as it has been, there's been a lot of good life lessons that have come out of this past year. Plus, I cooked a lot at home anyway when we're home. But that's the key phrase is that we just were, you know, Garth was in the middle of a stadium tour. When I'm doing the cooking show, there's not cooking happening at home because I'm cooking on set. And then I get home and I go to bed, you know, because I get up early the next day. So to be home this much has allowed us to have a routine that, and we, neither one of us are people who ever had a routine, you know, doing this for 30 years, the, the every day is different. And it's been good in in a lot of ways. And the other thing about that is things that we were grateful for. I thought I was always grateful to get to sing for a living and to get to go out and perform. But when those things get taken away from you, the thought that you'll never, ever take them for granted for a second again enters the picture. I'll never take for granted Getting to hug my sister because now she's vaccinated and I hope we never forget, you know, the things that we can lose and to, to be really appreciative for those things.
0: Yeah, amen to that. Well, Trisha, I've just got one more question and that is, what does it mean to you to be Southern?
1: Well, when we started this conversation, we talked about Monticello, Georgia and how I'll always be a a Georgia girl. I'll always be from Monticello, Georgia. For me, what I most think about when I think about being Southern is about my family and how I was raised and how, as far as being a person who loves bigly, loves their family so, so much. And I'm not saying that other parts of the country aren't that way, but in the South, there's such an encouragement to gather. We have a family reunion every time you turn around and that's where to not lose sight of where you came from, you know, seeing folks at those family reunions that have a whole different life experience than I do and have lived through things that I can't imagine. And that's where the sharing of stories and recipes, that's where that all comes from. I just know that's my experience sometimes a slower pace, which is also nice. Those are the things that that I, that I take with me as a Southerner. My mother, she was a Southern woman in that she didn't um, wear her heart on her sleeve. You know, she just didn't talk about things out loud that were not, you know, ladylike for a Southern lady. But she had this great sense of adventure. She didn't think that her life was just about raising children and Putting food on the table, although it was about that. She also had a job and she had great girlfriends and she traveled the world with me. Being Southern is all of those things. And also, how to make a good biscuit, which I think is really important. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's the truth. Trisha Yearwood, thank you so much for being on Biscuits and Jam.
1: Thank you very much for having me. I so enjoyed <laughs> talking to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to my conversation with Trisha Yearwood. Her new cookbook, Trisha's Kitchen, Easy Comfort Food for Friends and Family, is available September 28th and you can pre-order it now from Yearwood.com. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama and this podcast was produced and edited in Nashville, Tennessee. If you like what you hear, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or telling your friends about the program. You can find us online at southernliving.com. And subscribe to our print publication by searching for Southern Living at www.magazine.store. Biscuits and Jam is produced by Heather Morgan Schott, Chrissy Tiglius, and me, Sid Evans, for Southern Living. Thanks also to Ann Kane, Jim Hankey, Danielle Roth, Andy Bosnack, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People.